Today there are several different themes that come together in the calendars both of the church and our wider society. It is, of course, Memorial Day weekend, a national holiday on which we remember those who have died in the service of our country. It's also Rogation Day. You heard hints of it in our uh, hymn that we came into this morning, an occasion that has been largely lost to us along with the agrarian, agrarian way of life that made it seem so important in centuries past. Rogation Sunday is a time set aside even still to appreciate and to recognize our dependence upon the land for our food and most importantly our dependence on God for the miracles of sprouting seeds, growing plants, and maturing harvest. There's another great hymn that is sometimes sung on this Sunday, We Plow the Fields and Scatter the Good Seed on the Land. But uh, Amazon and other app-based instant grocery and prepared food deliveries make all this seem rather, I don't know, and sadly irrelevant to our contemporary reality. Some of you, I know, continue to grow food in your gardens, which is a wonderful thing, and I hope you'll keep doing it. Today is also the sixth Sunday of Easter, which is also the Sunday before the Ascension, which will be, of course, this coming Thursday. So lots of different themes are running through our liturgy here today. Now, I remember the occasion some time ago when I stood, as I often have over the past 30 years, at the graveside of a World War II veteran. And just after we had said the words of the committal service from the Book of Common Prayer, the military honor guard played taps then began their solemn ritual of the folding of the American flag as we all watched in silence. And after it had been ceremoniously and very precisely folded, corners tucked perfectly and the sides of the triangle traced and inspected with white-gloved hand, one of the sailors took the folded flag in his hands, made his way to the daughter of the deceased, walking in measured steps and turning at precise 90-degree angles, and then he placed the flag in her hands, saying, On behalf of the President of the United States and the Secretary of the Navy, we present this flag to you as a token of our nation's gratitude. I see this ritual nearly every time I preside at the burial of a veteran. Many of you have, I'm sure, witnessed it as well. And it always reminds me of the solemn dignity and the highly ritualized actions of the honor guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier in Arlington, Virginia, which I first saw, I believe it was in 1966 when I was 11 years old. It made a lasting impression on me. I remember the silence, the precise, virtually mechanical movements, the highly ritualized actions, and the solemn I would say almost religious intensity with which the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines carried out their duty in honoring those who die in battle by honoring this unknown soldier. In the book of Acts, we hear not about a tomb of an unknown soldier, but about an altar to an unknown God. And for some reason, these two things remind me of each other. It's a story in Acts 17 that occurs just after our first reading today from the book of Acts. 
And in this reading we heard this morning, we see Paul being called to Macedonia, to the city of Philippi, where he met Lydia, a prominent Gentile believer. And in the chapter that follows, we see Paul in Athens, where he seems almost in the thrall of Athens' glory and eager to engage its people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I've always thought of this story as an important insight into how we, as Christians, might think about our posture toward other religions. Paul takes a look around Athens and observes how very religious the people are. There are temples and shrines everywhere in this city. He seems in his speech in front of the Areopagus to be commending the Athenians for their religious devotion when he says these words. He says, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. And then he points out one particular altar that he had seen, an altar to an unknown god. Now these devout polytheistic Athenians, in their desire not to offend any of the myriad gods, uh, were covering all of their bases, it seems, just in case they had left one out. And Paul takes this opportunity to introduce a whole new idea into the mix. Whereas Greek polytheism honored gods who had specific roles and personalities, gods whose exploits reflected the forces of the natural world and the various qualities of human nature, Paul introduces a different kind of god, the god who made the world and everything in it, the god who is lord of heaven and earth and one who does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. Now Paul goes on to describe how this creator of heaven and earth set the boundaries of the nations and places where people would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us, as Paul says. And then Paul quotes from a piece of Greek poetry when he says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. Now I've always admired Paul's magnanimous and respectful tone here, and even his affirmation of other poets, of their own poets. We don't see him casting down altars like an Old Testament prophet or hurling condemnations at idol worshipers. He seems to be much more interested in meeting people right where they are and attempting to expand their consciousness from many different gods to the one God, the God in whom we all live and move and have our being. I kind of like that approach. It feels respectful of differences while seeking to engage in honest dialogue and expanding the terms of the discussion. I think it perhaps is even a good model for interfaith dialogue today. But I'm afraid that if that's all we see in this story, it might be just a little bit too self-serving and we could well miss another very important point. After all, it's just a little too easy to see ourselves along with Paul 
as the bearers of the truth, the ones with the higher consciousness, revealing the superiority of our own religious faith to those caught in a world of allegiances to lesser gods. And so before we become quite so self-congratulatory, let's ask whether we too, yes, even we who call ourselves Christians, have fallen for some lesser gods. So let's ask ourselves some questions. To what or to whom do we owe our highest allegiances? What are the most important things in our lives? To what do we devote our energies and our resources? Have we set up other altars in our own lives, altars to security, comfort, convenience, wealth, pleasure, prestige? Do we seek our own security or comfort or pleasure without consideration for how what we do and how we live affects others? Do we look to the things we can buy to give us meaning, or do we look to our abilities and accomplishments to give us security? Do we look to our nation or our social standing to give us meaning or a sense of identity? Are these the things in which we have put our trust? And yes, I ask myself these very same questions as, I, as much as I do anyone else, believe me. Altars to many gods, indeed. It's entirely possible that for the modern-day polytheist, the church can simply become our own altar to the unknown God, an insurance policy, if you will, just in case we haven't covered all of our bases with all those other gods we serve. Jesus says to one of his disciples in our gospel today, those who love me will keep my word. And what were Jesus' words? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. He even went beyond that to say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do not return evil for evil, but return good for evil. Bless those who curse you. Now, most of the time, it seems, we prefer to worship at other altars than that one. As we observe this Memorial Day weekend, we continue to see U.S. soldiers and civilians being killed in foreign wars. Nearly 7,000 American troops have died just in Iraq and Afghanistan since 9-11, over twice as many people as were killed that day. And tens of thousands more have been maimed or traumatized and now suffer from physical and mental disabilities. That, of course, does not even begin to account for the hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions now, of Afghan and Iraqi civilians and military who have been killed or injured, lives taken or irreparably harmed. And there is still, after 18 years of war, no end in sight. Even some of those war's most ardent defenders are now resigned to the futility of these adventures and the inevitability of endless war. It seems we cannot help but wonder what the name of the unknown gods we worship might be. Power, domination, security, 
and how many lives we will be willing to sacrifice on the altars of these gods. As Christians, we are in great need of finding and using our voice on these issues, and that can be very difficult, I know. It's true that Christians have differed throughout the ages on the matter of whether and under what circumstances war can be justified. And yes, good people can disagree on this. But that should not keep us from continuing the conversation and from searching our hearts and our minds for the will of God, not only in the abstract, but in the very specific situations we face today, whether in Yemen, Iran, or others that we will undoubtedly face in the future. Thomas Merton said that peace demands greater heroism than war. It demands greater fidelity to the truth and a much more perfect purity of conscience. When Paul invited the people of Athens to consider a God who is bigger than their lesser gods, He was inviting them to enter a new realm outside the parameters of our very human reality and our human instincts. Gods who simply reflect our own human propensities for violence or love or greed would not be enough. They cannot save us. But the God who made the world and everything in it can. And this is the God who has sought us out and wants to be in relationship with us This is the God in whom we live and move and have our very being. This is the God revealed to us in Jesus the Christ, the one who overcame death itself, having offered himself willingly as a testimony against the violence of this world, the incarnate one revealing once and for all the God who is with us and in us. Those who love me, Jesus said, will keep my word. And I have said these things to you while I am still with you, he he says, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, he said. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives, Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. 